Welcome to episode 50 of The Photo Show, and that's right, we are two years old and 50 episodes in, and it has been great. Uh, thank you to all the listeners, and of course to all of our wonderful guests. Uh, and calling in from uh, somewhere in the southwest is Kai McBride. Hey, Kai. Yeah, that's right, not <laughs> somewhere. I'm in Santa Fe, or just outside Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, out here visiting family, and uh of course, going out and walking in the arroyos and making some bad landscape photographs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how many pictures of cactuses do you need? And, um, and of course, going by PhotoEye bookstore and things like that. You of know. course. But 50 episodes in two years, I, someone will have to do the math to figure out that. But we're, we're being pretty consistent with releasing, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, when, when I started um, in 2015, it was one a week um, because I was very excited, <laughs> but I could not. Ah, keep... the folly of youth. That's right. I could not maintain that pace. But yeah, no, it's been uh, it's been great, and we've had a lot of listens, and um, uh, you know, it's just been a, a great run. Well, uh, on I guess it's appropriate on our two year anniversary that I should uh, uh, remind everyone that this was uh, Michael's dream show that he put together, and that I got invited in as a co host after it was already up and running and established. So I'm happy to be here as the talent, as it were. Oh, absolutely, and uh, it's been great doing the show with you. So many more to come. Exactly. Well, with enough congratulating ourselves, uh, we can talk about our guest coming up, uh, Aaron Turner, who's, uh, you've got some special news about him that has nothing to do with the podcast, right? Well, uh, right now, Aaron is, this is not the news, right now, Aaron is in a show in uh, Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art, uh, and that's up through August 13th, but um, Aaron will be having a solo show down at my Trenton Gallery, the James Kearney Campus Gallery, uh, in October, running through November. Uh, so, Next. yeah, it, it'll be on work that we discussed during the show, the, the Arkansas Delta work. Uh, mm. So, yeah, we're, we're all pretty excited about that. And Aaron will be taking over our Instagram account um, for the first week of uh, this podcast release. So definitely look, look for that real photo show. Yeah, you guys might have noticed uh, that uh, for those that are following our Instagram account that uh, we let uh, the fine folks uh, from uh, Float Magazine uh, take it over during the episodes that there were there, while their episode was up. Sorry, I stumbled on that. <laughs> and uh, it's something we're, we're hoping to keep going with. So uh, it'll be exciting to see what Aaron posts. I, I have to say I, I was excited uh, just to watch someone else sort of take over the account. And uh, they did a fantastic job. So thank you, Yoa Vandana. Great. All right. Uh, anything we should know before we get into listening to Aaron? Well, if you don't know Aaron Turner, um, you should check out his Twitter account. It's called Photogs of Color, at Photogs of Color. And uh, it's part of Aaron's you know, larger uh, body of work that he's been doing, and that is um, thinking about and recognizing photographers of color. Uh, and we talk a lot about that in this episode. Yeah, and um, it's interesting to just see, you know, even after... Uh, you know, even after all this attention is coming from different areas, that uh, there's so much work out there that still is uh, flying under the radar. And so it's great that, uh, you know, Float Magazine and now Aaron and uh, our next guest coming up, too, we're, we're trying to focus a little bit on people who are bringing attention to other photographers, not just themselves. And I think Aaron's a, a great example of that. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, uh, Kai, enjoy the rest of your trip. Where are you heading next? Yeah, after this, I mean, assuming not jail, uh, we'll be <laughs> uh, North Carolina. I'm going to the mountains in North Carolina to visit uh, more family. And so I'm out there for another week before returning to uh, New York. But uh, before I left, I did one important thing, which was I flattened in <laughs> the dry mountain press all of my 11 by 14 work prints, this big, nice stack, and put them in the cold press so that they'd be nice and flat when I got home. Oh, yeah. A little extended time in the cold press. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, check out uh, Kai McBride's uh, at, at Kai McPhoto Instagram account to see what that looks like and if you don't know what we're talking about. Exactly. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, enjoy the show and we'll talk soon. And uh, I'll see you soon, Kai. Yep. Great. <laughs> Saturday, which is unusual for me because we're at Columbia University and I'm not usually here on a Saturday, but uh, making you work exactly. But happy to be here uh, with Aaron Turner. Uh, welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now we were just uh, having like tech nerd talk, so uh, maybe we can just talk a little bit about your you your have a tech nerd job like uh, the mm -hmm. two of us as well, right? Yes. Uh, where are you working? Uh, I work at Bard College um, in Annandale on Hudson, New York. It's kind of a funny name. Mm. Uh, but I work in the film program there as technical director. And uh, usually my schedule is about four days a week there. Mm. And then on Fridays, I teach at Simon's Rock. Which Great. Is, yeah, Simon's Rock's there. Uh, yeah. Like kind of Their high school campus. slash yes. into college, like for advanced students thing, right? Exactly. And I kind of do some photo um, tech stuff part-time there as well. So just uh, trying to stay around creative people, young students, and um, I love the whole, what do you call it, college or uh, higher education atmosphere. That I really enjoy it. So. Yeah, well, uh, you're in good company here. Yeah. That's exactly, <laughs> that's, uh, I, I left a more lucrative computer career to spend more time around this lucrative mm -hmm. in the monetary sense not mm -hmm. in the spiritual sense yeah i guess i left a, a steady job too to sort of roll the dice uh and go do uh, for teaching and spend a lot of money on a degree and <laughs> all that exactly. yeah yeah <laughs> no. uh, so up at bard though do you get to interact at all with the photo department up there or? i did not interact with the photo department there as much as i would have liked to i went a to a couple of the student shows, the student senior thesis shows, and the students there are making really good work. Yeah, uh, I'm hoping to get more involved in that department. Um, it's kind of not really across the campus, but uh, the film department keeps me so busy. At the end of the day, I just most times I go home, but uh, <laughs> I'm hoping for you know a better uh, workflow schedule. You know, for my own personal goals this coming up year. But I I have met with. Um, on my Lee or on me, yeah, on Lee, me, Lee. yeah, yeah. Lee. Um, and her husband is John Pilson. I had a studio visit with him twice when I was at Rutgers, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I enjoy John a lot. I really uh, appreciate his feedback on work and and his his conversation uh, just around photography and art in general. 
And so I've uh, just been talking with the department there, just trying to, I haven't met everyone there, but I've, yeah, I've I was just slowly curious meeting and, people. You know, it's such yeah. a famous photo department, it is. For, especially for undergrad. I mean, uh, so many, Stephen Shore, what mm-hmm. he's put together there, and of course, the, all the other great faculty they've hired on. Exactly. And, uh, Tim Davis is there. And, I mean, it's like so many people mm-hmm. have taught there, but the uh, the students I, that come out of that program are, I mean, a lot of them go to Yale for yep. grad school, but it's, they come crossover. out, yeah, mm-hmm. they come out with a very strong portfolio. I mean, it's mm-hmm. such a strong undergrad photo program. So yeah. I was just, I was curious if you, uh, yeah, I haven't met Tim Davis, but I hope to reach out to him uh, once the fall semester kicks in. Um, he has, I really like his thoughts on mm. photography a lot. I've I heard a podcast that he was on and I've read a couple of things about him. Mm. Yeah. And uh so you did you get that job right after getting your MFA or pretty much. Um I'm pretty sure Columbia or SVA have like these email chains for the graduate students. You're on there with the faculty and jobs, studios always get blasted out Mm -hmm. over there. I finished up at Rutgers May. My lease ended and I went back home to Memphis Mm. to my mom's place. I just kind of stayed there, uh, tried to do work here and there, uh, tried to do a little bit of freelance and um, just kept applying to jobs. Had a couple of interviews. Uh, the first ones didn't work out, you know, at other colleges, kept just sending out so many applications. And then this thing at Bard College popped up mm. and it was in a film department. I said, I'm a photographer, but, you know, moving image, still image, sort of the principles are still the same. Especially since so many filmmakers are like shooting things with a Canon 5D. Exactly. Or, you know, like, yeah. You know. So I, I just felt comfortable applying for it. Uh, they liked my application, went up for an interview. Or I did a phone interview first, went up in person. Uh, they called me a couple of days later, said you had it, and I've been there ever since. And yeah. that was in July, then I moved in August. Started. Great. Oh, so just a year ago. Yeah, so just a year ah, ago. Great. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Coming yeah. up on a year. So, yeah, fresh. Fresh, <laughs> fresh news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> first on the podcast. Yeah, um, uh, yeah so uh, I'm sort of jumping around because uh, mm-hmm. linearity is boring, but... Um, since you've mentioned it already, why don't we talk about uh, your experience at uh, what is now one of the hottest uh, MFA programs in the country? This the Rutgers MFA program is oh, yeah. like so big now, right? Uh, yeah, Kara Walker, you know, mm-hmm. went there from <coughs> Columbia, <coughs> and <laughs> yeah. uh, and she taught here for a few years, here, and she went she here, here as for a student, many years, right? I don't. Oh, oh no! What is no, she? I don't know if she ever went here as a student, no, or if she, she did, she might have done it like as an undergrad or something. But she wasn't here as an she MFA. She taught here so for she taught here wow. for many years. Okay. Yeah, almost ten years. I and think. of course, we just did. had Gary Schneider on the show, and yeah, yeah, and we had Gary mm-hmm. Schneider on talking about Rutgers, and uh, uh, we mentioned uh, a mutual acquaintance, Emil Lasky, and he's mm-hmm. doing stuff there now, right now yeah. too, some work there. But um, how did you wind up? Uh, how did you wind up going to Rutgers, and and how did you choose that program? Well, I had just finished my MA or was finishing my MA at Ohio University in their visual communications program, and um, I always sought out higher education. I knew early on that I wanted to teach, mm-hmm. and um, I wanted to seek out the MFA degree uh, because I knew which way I was heading and. How I came across Rutgers, how that even got on my radar was that Latoya Ruby Frazier was there mm. at the time, but I don't even think she was still there when I applied. It, it was still on the website, and I had seen things that she was. 
That's what a lot there of departments do. And yeah. stuff like that. They, they kind of leave stuff website. up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this, this amazing person came through yeah. what, a couple semesters ago. Right. Once when, for one semester. <laughs> yeah. Right. Even when I got there, they still had, had her uh, tag up, you know, where her office was True. and stuff. But uh, I think she was working as the gallery director there. She had taught a couple classes. And then um, she had already had a little bit of a buzz. And then she had, you know, kind of a second, third, fourth wave. She just keeps going up and up and yeah, so macarthur genius yeah now, yeah and so i applied to Rutgers. i applied to tulane etsu uh, east tennessee state university mm-hmm. and then i applied to university of memphis mm-hmm. just because i applied to those places in the south just because of regional reasons and sort of the faculty at some of those places i wanted to work with well east tennessee has an amazing reputation yes right? mike smith yeah i mm-hmm. just retired recently or mm-hmm. maybe this year or something and uh, we've had uh, Stephen Hilger on our podcast, and he taught for very briefly at Tulane. Tulane. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, I know it's just as photographers, it's an interesting place to be, if nothing yes. else, too. So, uh, yeah, so you, I can understand yeah. why you reached out to all those yeah. places. I sort of applied to Rutgers uh, blindly, just, you know, just again, because Latoya Ruby Fraser's there, um, just the opportunity to be around her and work with her. So that didn't happen, but. Uh, Stephen Westfall, who's mm. the painter uh, professor at uh, Rutgers, called me and said, hey, you got in. Uh, here's this. We're going to cover your tuition. Uh, here's this amazing stipend. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, when I no. say amazing. <laughs> and we'll show you where uh, <laughs> exactly. right where her office used to be. Yeah. And so you can, uh, you can have the glow of that. <laughs> but then, meanwhile, um, here's this great yes. opportunity. Yeah. And then um, ETSU called me like, a couple of days later, I was like, yeah, you got in here too, uh, but we can only give you this much. Mm-hmm. We'll cover your tuition. But, uh, you know, mm-hmm. obviously Rutgers was the better deal. And um, my brother's in higher education. He's a professor at Virginia Tech. And he told me, you know, if you go to grad school, uh, if you don't have to pay for it, then go for it. And yeah. I asked yeah. a couple, couple other people and, you know, they said the same thing pretty much. Did you know anything about New Jersey before then? <sighs> I didn't know anything about New Jersey um, other than... My girlfriend uh, lives there. She's uh, lives in Montclair. Oh, so okay. I've been going back and forth to Montclair um, just because she lives there, still lives there. And um, so. And uh, I saw from, and we're going to link to your website, of course. Okay. Uh, but looking on your website, you've got uh, installation shots from your thesis show, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is something I can't find my installation shots from my thesis <laughs> show. I took the mic on it. This is it was in 2008. Mm-hmm. I used some cheap digital camera to mm-hmm. do it very quickly. And uh, and those were taken by Emil, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> nice. Yeah, there we go. Closing the gaps. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if there are installation shots in my thesis show. <laughs> yeah. But I wish I now I wish I had them. I mm-hmm. guess I could recreate them in my living yeah. room or something. Yeah. But there was definitely uh, an interdisciplinary nature to your thesis show, at least. So was that part of what attracted you to going to a program that wasn't going to be just like like a, a program like Yale, for example, maybe that was like photo, photo, photo? Yes, I was, you know, just because, of, you know, applying to graduate school and thinking about the cost and everything. I, I wasn't familiar with Yale. I didn't really know anyone there to sort of reach out to. At the time, I was applying to graduate schools and I was a little unsure about the funding and Things like that. So I just applied to places that I knew for sure, you know, with the exception of Rutgers, uh, that I would have funding if I went there. Mm-hmm. But Rutgers has a very interdisciplinary um, feel to it. Uh, the whole program is sort of laid out. I don't know if they changed it a little bit, but it should be still be the same. But you, you have an opportunity to take classes with all of 
the professors and whatever their discipline is, you know, they all call the class painting one for the first year and painting two for the uh, second year or whatever. Um, you know, that's just a formality, but it'll say painting and maybe the readings and the seminar would be based on that, but it's a very seminar format. You have studio visits constantly in class and outside of class, student, student run crits. Uh, we meet up late at night at someone's studio Hmm. and we just talk, you know, have some drinks and whatnot. And just that whole atmosphere is sort of, and going, drawing back to Ohio University again, there was a way there that images were being made and specifically for newspapers and photojournalism. So the thinking was more so toward that. I thought I was going to go and be a photojournalist, but I obviously did not end up doing that. There had to be more to photography as opposed to constructing a picture a certain way and the talking around it. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm always more interested in in having people who aren't photographers look at my work and, and even just the general public because they're, they're come at it from a, a different perspective. Um, so having painters and sculptors and, you know, media, mixed media people looking at my images and having conversations about that really open the door for me as an artist personally, mm. you know. Well, the, the title of the show is uh, Black Alchemy. Mm-hmm. It involves painting and photography. And uh, were there other media involved? In that? Um, a little bit of uh, digital imaging. Okay. You know. Yeah. Uh, and it, and uh, you write about it as um, ideas uh, about uh, the black artist and blackness as material and mm-hmm. what is black art, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is... Um, a large part of your work and mm-hmm. also your social media as yes. well, right? Yes. And it looked like there was, uh, from if I remember correctly, there was a section from, uh, was it like a, a, a questionnaire or something from like Jet Magazine? Yes. Like about a, passing, right? Yes. And passing is just something interesting. I read this uh, novel or short story by Nella Larson called Passing. You know, it's the, you know in an African-American history class um, when I was at University of Memphis. And so that's been stuck in my head. And that was the first time I became aware about the act of passing and then just looking at my own family. You know, my grandfather and my dad uh, traced the family history back all the way to uh, where our first descendant came from and who the slave owner was and all this kind of stuff. Wow. And they talked to distant cousins and Things like that. That's a whole nother story. And hmm. some of the other work that I want to do soon has to deal with some of that stuff directly. Mm. Uh, roots from Mississippi and Arkansas and Louisiana, mm. that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, this 1952 Jet Magazine um, questionnaire is like, who's white? You know, which is white, which is Negro? And it has mm. all these about 12 pictures in a grid or so. And it's all these people, you know, it's asking you, uh, which person is white, which person is a black person. Mm. And um, you can barely tell. And, you know, some of that stuff goes back to what I, the work that I did at Ohio University as well. Um, there's triracial communities there. And just a little short tidbit on that, you know, there's families there where uh, just based on, you know, the idea of like genotype and phenotype, uh, one child may come out dark skinned and obviously mm-hmm you know, looks black, has black features, and then the other child may come out and look 
like a white person and be able to quote unquote pass. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, certain family dynamics there where, uh, you know, that your brother, you know, that your sister, you walking on opposite sides of the street, but you act like you don't know each other. Right. So there's, you know, that goes back to Nella Larson's passing. It's very Mm -hmm. like deep under unspoken. Yeah. Charged. Yeah. Things that happen around that, that word of passing and just skin color in general. Yeah, I remember reading um reading the biography of the uh amazing cartoonist who did it's like Ignatz uh it's from the 30s and it's uh, about this cat and mouse Ignatz and uh I'm forgetting the mouse. Uh, Herman Herman is oh. the yeah. And it, I mean incredible stuff but mm-hmm. um he never he he moved to California and didn't tell anyone anything about his family or where he came from and he always wore a hat and there's mm-hmm. like all this thing and like it's sort of coming out later that you know he was passing probably passing for white and but in a way that even like you know people he his wife like he mm-hmm. kept it so buried it was like that you know like a version of being in the closet kind of thing it was just like mm-hmm. not to be spoken about and you just you gotta imagine how confusing and mm-hmm. uh and that was a generational yeah thing it's just you just didn't talk about it and it's, it's just several things that people just did not talk about, mm. you know, back in the 50s and 60s, 40s, 30s, uh, that kind of thing. I, I have a great uncle, uh, which is my grandmother's brother on my mom's side. He he had the skin disease or has the skin disease vitiligo. Mm. So if you look at him, you know, you would say he's a white man, mm-hmm. but he didn't look like that growing up. Mm. Right. And, you know, that's not even passing or, you know. Right, because your, your identity is already formed, exactly. and then suddenly your skin color changes. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So. And of course, there was like all of the stuff around surrounding Michael Jackson and yes. like whether or not that was really happening, and mm-hmm. was he just doing makeup, or was he bleaching? It was like, yeah. oh my God, like it gets so complicated, right? It, that's very complicated. And that's before you add in plastic surgery and everything yes. else. So, mm. so um, yeah, a lot of charged things to uh, try to grapple yeah. with for your thesis show. Yeah. It was It was tough. <laughs> yeah. When I first got there to Rutgers, I was uh, re-photographing photographs from history, uh, pictures of Marvin Gaye, uh, Sidney Poitier, Paul Robeson, uh, Malcolm X, uh, things like that. And the responses that I would get to those photographs is, you know, it's too sensationalized. You know, the characters are too well known. This, this, this is kind of working, but, you know, maybe use your family photographs or, or use people who are, who are less known mm. um, and things like that. And, you know, I, as I became more exposed to different artists that were specifically working with photography and some and sculpture, that's how my thesis show sort of came together and like I said it was involved in painting which was sort of a reference from uh, Glenn Ligon mm-hmm. and his um, stencil oil paintings mm-hmm. yeah, his neon and his neon and his neons yeah, yeah. I, there's a neon piece I would like to do, but uh, I have to see how much it will cost. <laughs> we know, there's these new services. I don't know if you've been paying attention. There's these mm-hmm. services. I think one's even in here in Manhattan where where you can like design it on the web, on their website interactively. And, then, and, oh, wow. uh, and I think something has changed in the technology. I'm not sure what. They, okay. they have like some new the equivalent of like a 
of a computer numerically controlled something, and so they're oh, wow. able to offer this cheaper than traditional, like going to a traditional neon place. Well, I, I need still to think that. it's a couple hundred bucks or something. Okay, but but it's not. That's, that's better than a couple thousand. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I know, like a, a former student of mine, when she graduated, her graduation present to herself in her new apartment, which had like almost nothing in it, was she mm-hmm. made it got a custom neon sign neon made sign for like yeah. that was like her instead of a couch, you know, she got <laughs> nice. that. But Alma, if you're listening, that's you. Uh, so. Uh, <laughs> You know, so it's you might be able to get one made. Yeah. You know, yeah. actually Check one day I'll, I'll make it and, yeah. um, or get it made. And um, back to the Black Alchemy, it's so many different parts about that to talk about. Well, the thing I yeah. the reason part of the reason I wanted to bring it up first was thinking about you coming from Ohio. You mentioned that you're like mm-hmm. in a program where they were sort of focused on oh I'm gonna you're gonna be a photojournalist or taking photographs a certain way you identified oh Latoya Ruby Fraser and her work is very mm-hmm. much in a documentary well it's comes out of a documentary tradition right mm-hmm. and you're you're making other work that's uh, very much in that documentary type of tradition mm-hmm. and then uh, the thesis show is this other it's it sort of seemed it's like oh, this other thing like more oh, conceptual wow. yeah more yeah. conceptual yeah. in the painting so I was curious if uh, how much um, you know, graduate school had, uh, it had and a large program. impact on me. I wanted to break away from documentary for a while. I was still photographing in, in the South. You know, you go back and forth on school breaks and things like that. So I was still making that work and I had been making it for a period of time where I felt comfortable leaving it and going back to it, leaving it, going back to it. I mm. felt comfortable with that. And um, I wanted to try out this whole new thing. Mm. And I don't think the ideas around what Black Alchemy talks about is able to be expressed through documentary photography. It was sort of an internal conversation I was having with myself and the cohort of graduate students that I was with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the atmosphere at Rutgers is, you know, these, it was about almost 40 of us maybe, or in the, in the like 33 of us, 32 of us, one in second year students, because it's a two year program, but uh, everyone gets to know each other's work and um, it becomes a revolving door, a revolving conversation around what it is you're doing. You get to see how everyone's work changes uh, over the course of two years up into their final thesis show and you're working with the professors and everything. So that, that, that sort of environment for me in trying to develop my voice and what I was trying to say uh, was like it was just it was a perfect situation for me. Yeah, I really enjoy my time there. And uh, anytime someone mentions graduate school to me, I always ch- encourage them to say, hey, Rutgers is free. Apply there. Yeah. Uh, there may not be any faculty there you want to work with that you know of now. But they will. But, right? but when you get there, <laughs> the atmosphere is in a way where it allows you to grow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's close to New York. So if you want that is. New York energy, you know, you can come. A lot of my it. classmates kept their places here in New York because, you know, if, if you give it up, it's hard to get something oh, yeah. else, that <laughs> kind of thing. A lot of people would commute mm-hmm. two or three days a week, that yeah. kind of thing. People always came back to New York on the weekends to see shows or just to be here um, in general. So, yeah, a yeah, good friend of mine, Ben Malloway, went to that program okay. and he we were living together in Bushwick and he wound up. He, he's like, I, I want to be there all the time in my studio. Yeah. So he moved there. But. It's tempting to, mm-hmm. to stay behind. And, you know, the show, we, we talked about the show uh, being a bit more conceptual. You were trying to cover a number of different topics. And, and part of that was how you identified yourself in some ways. In, in the Lens Scratch article, you talked about yourself in two ways as 
the idea, the mindset that if I just work hard and the work is good, that's enough, right? Mm -hmm. that, and then I'll succeed. But then at, at the same time, you look around and there aren't a lot of photographers who look like you yes. as well. And, and in the work, you're, you, know, you, you, you talk about genealogy and DNA and then you talk about um, the um, history of art. And so you're, you're dealing kind of micro, macro and micro at the same time, mm -hmm. right? Yourself and also the, the larger art world. Yes. In a way, I'm trying to figure out if there is a, a set of circumstances that creates the perfect storm in a good way in terms of making coming to a point, making your own work, having a set of rules and moves that you work through and work by, having that appreciated by your peers and, and having it relate back to art history in a way that makes sense with the present time and, and, and where we're moving because the art world is constantly changing. There was a lot of conversation about the art world, the art market mm. at Rutgers I don't know, it's just so much to think about. And some of the artists that I began to look at and still look at now is uh, Barbara Caston, mm -hmm. um, Aaron O'Keefe, Jessica Eden, Leslie Hewitt, um, Eileen Quinlan. So sort of all these people that I see, all of them are sort of related, whether it's black and white work, monochrome work, or color. Uh, there's some formal things in, 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 those, in all those photographers' work that I'm just drawn to. I was always drawn to light. Even when, when I do documentary photography, I'm just drawn to the light. Um, that one light source many of the pictures were taken with, and how does that sculpt a space? How do you relate it back to yourself? Take something so general and try to make something out of it as far as like intellectually thinking about it. And so my brain still feels like a whirlwind, <laughs> even now as I'm talking about it, and, and even when I was making the work. Mm. Uh, but somehow I was able to come out with those works. So <laughs> yeah, I like I like that you say uh, that you realize that for the things you wanted to get across in the work that you weren't going to be able to do it in still photographs. Yes. And I think that's something that people fail to recognize a lot, and especially people making more conceptual work. And they, they'll just put a photograph up and it winds up being kind of just an illustration. And then there's the mm -hmm. idea in the title or some text next to it. And, it, yeah. and it, they just force the two together. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, there are other means of expression mm -hmm. because some things just can't be done in a still photograph, yeah. right? That's Alone. Why, yeah. That's why all this work now is coming out about the photograph as an object, and, and people taking it off the wall and doing all these crazy things with it, and installations and stuff, uh, because a photograph is sort of removed from the viewer in a way that a painting or a sculpture is not. Even though we see that painting or that sculpture in, in its so-called final, you know, final presentation, we didn't see it when the artist was making that work in their studio, but it's still an object present right there. You can look at it, you can touch it. You can walk around it, um, but the photograph is just this still thing, and I think that's one of the advantages that photography has. We can keep constructing and you know clawing away at that idea and how to you know unpack it, and then it's a disadvantage because uh, photographs tend not to have that same impact as maybe a painting would, and photography doesn't have as much history as painting to draw from. We we were talking to Trisha Wright at Pen and Brush, and she had taken these sort of uh, uh, sculptural pieces that she had made and photographed and then turned them into paintings because 
or at least frame them like paintings, mm -hmm. because she said when people were looking at them as photographs, all they were thinking about is the objects, as if the because the objects were real, mm -hmm. and they couldn't break that connection between the reality of the object and the the oh, image. Yeah, yep. and the right. Uh, what are you working on right now? What I'm working on right now, I want to continue the work from Black Alchemy. Um, so I'm working on some stuff with that. Um, just coming up with different aesthetics, uh, trying to work out some different processes and vantage points, viewpoints, that whole thing, just trying to take a whole new sort of 360 approach to it, but still talking about those same ideas. And what I've mainly been working on now is um, seeing my family here and there. I haven't seen them that much. Still working on the Arkansas work or family work mm -hmm. in general because the stuff I've been shooting lately has not necessarily been in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as that work is concerned. And then um, on Instagram, I've been posting these little 10-second videos of just what I'm drawn to and just thinking about the still photograph versus the moving image, being in the film department. Mm -hmm. I've been, I watch film, I project 16-millimeter film, and so you can't help but be influenced by that. And just looking at the work of Stan Brackage mm -hmm. and um, Ernie Gare, I think it's his name. And um, Peter Hutton, who used to be a professor at uh, Bard College, he passed away right before I started. But uh, mainly paying attention to framing hmm. because filmmakers are sort of working in that same way as, as photographers are, you know, in framing and constructing things. So these 10-second videos will eventually turn into, hopefully, hopefully uh, I will take that same concept take it back to the Arkansas Delta and look at that work in, a, in the same way mm. as opposed to going around with a camera trying to find people, mm. that whole thing. Mm. Um, so oh. I'm just trying to find so different I, ways. To an evolution it. of a documentary approach, but it, yeah, exactly. going to actual yeah, like, that, film. That's the move that I'm interested in, sitting the camera still, recording time. It's not still um, playing around with durations and how people respond to that versus just the still photograph. Mm -hmm. Um, and it may not be much difference, but the, I mean, it could be something there. You know, you just have mm -hmm. to do a certain amount of it to sort of figure that out. Right. Because you do yeah. interview people as well. And uh, like, yes. so would you, are you imagining going to that level of like filmmaking where actually having conversations with people and them speaking back? Or are you thinking of them more as like these moving still images? Just the moving still images and maybe uh, in, you know, at Ohio University, I had a, one of the professors says, that uh, the only thing photography has to be jealous about uh, with film is that it has sound. Absolutely. And <laughs> Which means music. Yes, yeah. right? <laughs> and so, you know, you can take these silent landscapes or these silent durations of, um, you know, whatever you're pointing the camera at, and you record it, but you can also go back and layer voice over on top of it. So I'm also thinking about just things when I grew up, like um, maybe recording a choir and having that over the top. Um, conversations with family members, conversations with community members, people I come across, uh, just recording things that way and maybe layering that on top of whatever I document because I'm not really interested in filmmaking in the way uh, or maybe you may do a documentary mm -hmm. on someone, you, you know, you have B-roll and you cut the interview and all this kind of stuff. I've never really been interested in making work that way, but I know how to do it. Uh, I just don't like doing it. Really. <laughs> yeah, no. I, that's what I was just trying. I was, yeah, I, it I'm sounded one, like what you were talking about. Yeah, the other thing. I'm that's sort of a curious. one camera body, one yeah. lens type yeah. of guy. Mm. Uh, 
no matter if it's digital or mm-hmm. you know film because right. the, the images from black alchemy were shot with a four by five right and i just scanned them and gotcha. brought it back into the digital world and that's a whole nother conversation did i see on <laughs> uh, i think on, on two different sites you you claim uh, arkansas as kind of home and then tennessee is, is kind of home yeah, as well I, you know so if you cross just how you cross the river from mm-hmm. jersey into new york that's how the mississippi river divides arkansas in Tennessee, and the bridge is the, the Tennessee Arkansas Bridge, and um, appropriately named, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's I forty. Not creative. Yeah, <laughs> the, the place I grew up in is called West Memphis, Arkansas. Uh, wow, the, I think <laughs> I'm almost certain it's called the truck stop capital of the world because it intersects. You can go north, south to New Orleans, or you can go west to California, or you can go all the way to the edge of the east coast to the oh, carolinas or up here a little crossroads New York yeah. yeah so it's right there in the center what is most famously known for is the west memphis three court case mm-hmm. three youths were um uh, convicted for these murders of these three boys so there were three convictions and three murders and um there's a whole thing about who did it and they they had to plead that they were guilty they're all like in their 40s now and they got out recently a couple of years ago I know one of them lives here in New York. Hmm. I think his name is Damien. I forget his last name. But yeah, so I grew up in West Memphis, Arkansas, but I always had family in Memphis. So Christmas, both my grandparents stayed over in Memphis. And then my dad's dad, he moved back and forth. He had a house in Arkansas. Then he was hmm. done with that. Then he moved to Memphis. Then he moved back to Arkansas again. Now he's permanently in Memphis. So it's always been a back and forth, back and forth. And both sides of my family sort of have roots in Mississippi. So Jackson, Mississippi, Utica, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. There's a small town called Walls, Mississippi. And that's directly like in North Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So, so that, tri, that uh, tri-state area, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Arkansas, so close. Mm-hmm. People just migrate naturally mm-hmm. to and from so that's why I'm interested in that region. And um, I was in West Memphis, Arkansas, up into the eighth grade, mm. first half of eighth grade, second semester. We moved to Tennessee. Uh, I grew up in the in the suburbs of Memphis, Tennessee, in this small place called Cordova, mm. Tennessee. But it it was it's Memphis now. It was annexed. You know how that oh, goes. Yes. It right. was never Wrong. properly a township or incorporated or whatever. So Memphis. Just was just like, oh, we'll take this. We need more <laughs> tax money and school tax and Voters. all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I still go back and forth. But, it, you know, if I go back now, I'll mainly go back to Memphis. But even though my parents don't even live in Memphis now, my mom's in Texas and my dad is in uh, just in the in between Pine Bluff and Little Rock, Arkansas. It's mm-hmm. about three hours drive from Memphis. So I go see him once or twice a year. Yeah, that area of the country is interesting because, well, for many reasons, but one of the reasons when you go visit there is it's so easy to imagine yourself going back in time, like mm-hmm. 50, 60, 70 years even yeah. sometimes. You know, if when you're, you know, those, of course, there was like the boom in the 1920s. If you go mm-hmm. to like Clarksdale, Clarksdale looks yep. like 1925 still, a lot of it, you know. A lot of plantations, yeah, and then there's, prospering, there's cotton. All, there's all the cotton along the highways you're driving along, yep. of course, you know, and then there's like the, the sad new things like uh, mm-hmm. everyone going to, you know, going gambling at the yep. casinos and all of that. Juke but joints. Juke you joints, You can barely yeah. find those now. Yeah. If, 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 if you do find a juke joint, it's uh, like these two lounges, Red's Lounge. I think that's 
Morgan Freeman's oh yeah um, place in oh, yeah. Clarksdale, uh-huh. uh, and then there's this other thing called uh, Pope Monkey's Lounge. Mm. Where is that? Right outside of Jackson or close to Jackson, Mississippi. So they become kind of commercialized because a lot of photographers go there, document it, it gets out in the world, people want yeah. to go visit. That kind I was of down thing. there for the King Biscuit Blues Festival. Oh, yeah. Over on the Tennessee side, I think, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, uh, yep. It's I had the to radio go, guy, right? Exactly. But I had to go through Clarksdale just because it's in so many songs and stuff. It's like, how could mm-hmm. you not go through Clarksdale? I mean, yep. Memphis, of course, but, you know, it's like Clarksdale is, there's yep. all kinds of, there's all kinds of great blues yep. songs that mention Clarksdale. My granddad and his brothers went to school with a, a blues singer called Johnny Taylor. Mm. Um, and he has this song called My Last Two Dollars. But I don't think it's it's not widely known because I don't ever think it was in a movie or anything like mm-hmm. that to really spread it. But people in the region know about that song. And, you know, he grew up in this small town, um, Earl, Arkansas, or mm-hmm. how things were kind of divided thin as far as like official townships and, mm-hmm. and stuff was dirt roads and just a place, yeah. you know, back then. But now things are, uh, you know, paved and it looks a little different. And yeah, my grandmother and my granddad. Um, my mom's parents, they used to pick cotton by hand. Mm. And, and by the, uh, when they were in their teenage years, it was more like the cotton, the, the three row cotton picker. It was fairly new technology then. And my granddad tells me stories about, you know, that whole sharecropping situation and then taking that cotton over to Tennessee, to Memphis, to the cotton gins. And, uh, you have the cotton exchange mm-hmm. over there. And then my grandmother, you know, used to pick cotton by hand. Mm. Um, you know, you fill up the sack or whatever. But it, um, I, I don't, I think it was, it was hard labor, obviously. Um, but I don't think it wasn't like, you know, I, I don't think there was an overseer there. And, it, you know, it, you know, this it wasn't, is way a, it wasn't abusive. Yeah. Was, it, right. it was just, you did just it hard to work. earn money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You did it to earn money. And what she explained to me is that, you know, all the other kids, they would take their money back home and give it to their parents. You know, mm. the whole family would be out there. Mm. And I think her whole family was out there as well, but her dad would allow them to keep their money. They wanted to buy uh, the first TV. They had the first TV in their neighborhood, and everyone would come over and watch it. But, you know, that was from money saved up from picking cotton. Mm. Everybody put their money together. Mm. You know, her dad said, you know, I'm not going to take your money. You want a TV Save your money up and buy it, that kind of thing. Yeah, so that kind of work ethic and stuff is in my background. I think about it a lot. And as far as hand-picking cotton, you have farmers now who own, like, thousands of acres of land. And I've seen the operations, and it's literally the guy maybe only have four people working for him. Sure. The machine pushes out the big cotton bale, whether it's square or round module, and then they tag it with a GPS tag. <laughs> the truck driver comes and pick it up. There's a guy that works like a hoe, like the John Deere hoe, and then he, you know, lines them all up. Truck comes and picks them up the next day. You scan <laughs> everything. It's it's crazy yeah. how it works now. You know, just one person, and, and that affected the economy. Just like I said, you know, families would pick the car. You know, it, I don't I don't think it was anything people wanted to do, but it was just it was that's a just job. How time it was available. Was it was available. Yeah, and um. Uh, well, and for white the, and black people. Yeah, and on the so, other side of the yeah. thing, it's also, you know, to be frank, that's also why people were brought to the area, too. Yes. It's like right. for the, manual the labor. The cotton gins were booming. You drive yeah. around the Arkansas Delta now, there is no booming. Period, yeah. Um, yeah. Industry. You know, everything is leaving. Yeah. Right. Um, and then the populations, people move to the town I lived in, West Memphis, or they move to 
Memphis, Tennessee, or they move to Little Rock mm. um, just, you know, so they have a job because the jobs on the farms and things like that are very spare. You know, it's not employing whole towns or anything like that anymore. There's like dog food factories around there and like refineries for different things. Mm. Um, Another funny photo and uh, cotton connection mm-hmm. is uh, I read Sally Mann's biography last oh, year yeah. and her grandfather, like he invented something for making it so much easier when they after they got the cotton in to like separate it out and before mm-hmm. it was like people standing around in rooms just like surround mm-hmm. full of it and like yeah. you know getting very like their lungs full of the mm-hmm. the cotton fibers and he made like an automated way to do it that's yeah. how like their family fortune was made mm-hmm. so and fyi yeah there's there's cotton and photography mixed together that's yeah. right it is, it yeah. is. Do your your parents work now or no uh actually my dad teaches my dad's an architect and growing up, he had his own business, you know, it's much like being a freelance photographer. Now that I look back hmm. at it, you know, trying to have your own business, mm-hmm. and making sure you get paid, making sure people pay you and employing other people and all that kind of stuff. Uh, my dad had several offices growing up. I used to go when my mom got tired of us being in the house, like you're going with your dad this weekend. You know, we would drive to Mississippi, way out Middle of nowhere where my dad, he built a lot of churches or designed a lot of churches. That was mainly what he did. But now he teaches uh, at University of Arkansas, Pine Bluff, UAPB, mm. and which is a paper mill town. And he teaches like AutoCAD and the design mm. programs to the students in the engineering program there, I think. Computer mm. science or engineering. It, it, it's sort of different when you try to like, you know, I don't think it's a straight up architecture program, but he's mm. still teaching architectural mm-hmm. sort of concepts. And uh, my mom is retired now, uh, which I was in, just in Houston uh, looking after her. Um, she's dealing with uh, breast cancer right now, uh. Uh, but she's hanging in there. And mm. so that's sort of her situation. She's, she's in Houston, moved to Houston for the for the treatment. Right. That type right. of thing. So, um, hmm. and I'm also dealing with all those things photographically as well. I know like um, Nancy Browick, I can't pronounce her last name. She just came out with a book called Cancer Family. Um, I just got the book in the mail. I know she's doing a book tour right now because both of her parents passed away battling cancer. Um, and I'm not uh, documenting my mom's situation in the same way. I'm still documenting as when I started my Arkansas work, um, but just making portraits of her. Every time I see her, I make a formal portrait. Mm. So I believe in sitting on work and letting it build up. You may mm. work on a, a body of work for 10 years or 20 years, and you know then it may be finished or it may be good enough to put out in the world, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So that's how I approach all my work. So that that's kind of what I'm working on. I make a portrait of my dad each time I see him. So just letting it build up. Take a portrait of my brothers each time I see them mm-hmm. in different ways. It's not always the same way. Um, what's hey, that, that worked yeah. for Nick Nixon, right? Yeah, yeah. Nick Nixon. That's what I was <laughs> yeah, just yeah. thinking about. 40 years, the same four That's long term. Yeah. Uh, so when did you start uh, Photographers of Color? Photographers of Color sort of, it started in, I had to look back at it the other day because uh-huh. I was trying to write something about it uh, for an application. But um it started around 2014. I can't remember the exact month, but it started maybe just before I started at Rutgers. I had went to the New York Times Portfolio Review my last year at Ohio University. 
took a road trip with three other classmates or two other classmates who got accepted. We stayed in New York for like two days, went to the review, came back, that whole thing. And that, that was started by Jim Estrin. Some people call him or James Estrin, a photo editor over at New York Times and staff photographer that runs Lens Blog with uh, David Gonzalez. So when I went there, there was this uh, very outspoken photographer, Ruddy Roy, who's a, uh, popular on Instagram. Sure. I think he's sponsored by Fujifilm now, and he's he's you know he's continued working. Just had a show projects. at yeah. Stephen Casher yeah. Gallery. Exactly. Yeah. And so I had heard him kind of. I think he maybe he taught a class at at the Columbia Journalism School or something. And he was saying every time he you know begins the class, the first day he asks the students, um, "How many of you know black a black photographer?" You know, no one can raise their hands. Mm. And now that, you know, obviously Eli Reed from Magnum. And then Gordon Parks, I think, is the face of black photographers, whether you talk about editorial, commercial, fine art. He's just the face mm. of African-American photographers and maybe photographers of color in general. Mm. When you just think about that as a straightforward idea. And um, even he's just now getting his recognition. Right. That sort of thing. Um, well, the history books always yeah. hit uh, James Vanderzee and Gordon Parks. Yes. And so you usually get the same four photographers. Roy, yeah. Roy de Carrava. Roy de Carrava. Right, right. Yeah. Louis Draper, mm-hmm. that yeah. kind of thing. Well, Louis Draper, even he's just more not recently. getting his due. Exactly. Yeah. More recently. And I think it's more to come. Yeah, yeah. People acquiring, you know, with the Cambones getting group. in collections yep. and stuff like that. Yeah. So Ruddy Roy inspired you to start... Uh, yeah, he did in a way because I had never thought about it like that. And, you know, here I was the only African-American in my program at Ohio University. And when I... Incoming class at Rutgers, I was the only African-American person in that class. Yes. Um, <laughs> who was a photographer? There's a, another person, uh, Jai, Jahi... His last name. Oh, I'm sorry, Jahi. I'm forgetting your <laughs> last name. But uh, Jahi was a uh, a class ahead of me, second year along with Emil. Jahi Sabater. There Sabat- we go. Sabater, Ooh, Sabater. Yeah. It's, it's always good when we get it within like the ten yeah. seconds that we mentioned. <laughs> who, yeah. Who 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 also inspired me along with those other photographers that I was mentioning. I saw the work that he was making when I went to Rutgers, and um, he greatly influenced me. I always had like talks with him. Um, after crits and stuff like that, you know, I don't understand why people respond to my work like this. You know, how many changes mm. I got to make to it, that kind <laughs> of thing. So yeah, that's how photographers of color came about. And my whole idea behind that Twitter feed is just okay. Twitter's straightforward; it can get out to a lot of people quickly. You know, I don't have thirty thousand followers like some photography platforms, but hey, that's okay. <laughs> it, it doesn't really matter. It's about you know who's who's actually paying attention to it. You know, those people will go out and spread it to other people. But it's just a platform to put out there, whether you're a filmmaker. I even post painters on there sometimes just because I like the idea and other artists who are working with photos. Uh, I just put that on there uh, just to inspire other people. And it's just about getting work out there by photographers of of color. So going back to what Ruddy uh, Roy said, no one can raise their hand now and say that they don't know. I've put all this stuff out here. It's countless articles i think a lot of people are taking notice especially lens blog lately has done so much and john yao writing about black photographers on hyperallergic who also was at rutgers hmm. who also is he's still at rutgers yeah 
There's yeah, Teju you know, Cole, who's uh, got a show up right now yes. at uh, Stephen Kasher, Kasher, and of mm-hmm. course writes those amazing articles yeah. too for New yeah, York exactly. Times. So people are taking notice, and um, I don't know. Maybe it'll get to a point where people don't, you know, can't complain about it anymore or anything. You know, I, I take the Kerry James Marshall approach. That's what they said um, when Obama was elected. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I try to take the Kerry James Marshall approach. Is you know, figure out. Uh, okay, why doesn't Gordon Parts get mentioned, or why is he the only one that gets mentioned? Why is there only these four or five photographers that get mentioned? You know, you can't tell the narrative of the history of photography without Robert Frank. You know what I mean? Because he mm-hmm. started this whole line of things. So, where are the African American photographers that you cannot tell the uh, history of photography narrative without mentioning them? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's slowly coming into play as people write about it more and people take notice and you know maybe that maybe that person did make a you know a big contribution um to the field of photography and just art in general and and who was influenced by them and is continuing stuff in that line right because i'm pretty sure i'm not sure about all the relationships but most like i know new york i mean people know each other like steven shore you know he knew andy warhol and you know People just know each other, whether you're a painter, photographer, whatever, Jasper Johns, you know, all these, they knew all these other painters, they knew all these other black painters, Romeo Bearden, uh, Paul Robeson, they knew all the uh, Newman, and, you know, they knew all these painters that were getting, you know, prominent shows, and at the same time, no one noticed who those, you know, Aaron Douglas was until recently, mm. you know, the migration paintings and all that kind of stuff. So this yeah. narrative has been going on. People know that black artists are out there, but it's just about uh, why isn't that work included in the overall narrative? And the Kerry James Marshall approach that I was mentioning earlier is to figure out the keys. And that's what I was mentioning earlier about the perfect storm. What combination of things? Let's know the hist- art history. Let's know the history of photography. And let's figure out how we can insert ourselves in that narrative overall. You know, mm-hmm. let's, let's figure out the steps, you know, overall volume of work, mm-hmm. years spent on a project. And let, let's not make it all about the galleries and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, obviously, sure. one of the things Who is you know also and all that kind of making the work, too, right? Yeah. It's like keep making the work. And then, look, a lot of people might not have known who Kerry uh, James Marshall was before yeah. he had that. He's been that. working away in his studio for 40 years. Exactly. But after so. that retrospective uh, at the Met, like. He was everywhere. He's everywhere, right? Yeah. And, uh, but you you go to that show, and of course, you know, look, you're seeing 40 years worth of work in one exhibition. So, but just to see how, uh, just the constantly chipping away and again, yeah. like trying all that, you can see the the way the ideas like evolved over time, exactly. and uh, and but how there was this also a constant theme uh, moving through the work. It's and his personal goals for his own work was, you know, to sort of um, make it into the narrative of art history where they are not able to tell the narrative without mentioning him. Right. So he's at that point now. Yeah. And, um, you know, trying to get in the art history books, trying to, you know. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I mean, look, I think that's the goal of every artist is like trying to get it so you're not, that your work lives on beyond you. But then when you, you add to it that, what are the things that are stacked against you to make it so that your work doesn't get 
included in these, you know, Major these things. books, these yeah. annuals of like, you know, whatever it is, photography so, until yeah. now or this or that, yeah. you know, whatever these things are that help other people discover your work, your right? Work. How, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, well, one thing might be that you're not in New York and so you don't meet the people who are making the next book or, exactly. you know, but then, uh, or might be that you are a woman or might be that you're a person of color and like mm-hmm. there's all these things, like what are all the things that's stacking up? I think as you were saying, it is very social and mm-hmm. uh, the social aspect of it also has a negative, con- has a negative yeah. connotations when people aren't being social, right? Yes. And I, I think I it's think- a genuine side to the who you know as well. That's more the sure. side that I'm interested oh, in because course, yeah. I was like, you know, how does it work? How do you get a show when you get out? Um, you know, how do you get gallery representation? Like, what does all that mean? And um, it may be something that's as simple, you know, one of your peers or colleagues may, you know, get an opportunity to curate a show and then they include you. And it's, it's not a gesture of, you know, oh, you're my friend, I'm going to put you in there. It's like, you know, your work is adding something to the field right now and your work absolutely has to be in this show and that may be the jump start of people noticing your work because everyone wants to be recognized by their peers uh, and then again Kara James Marshall speaks about not stopping at that not stopping at the nominal success you know you just only experience the success of your peers appreciating that work you know everyone shows up to your opening but you don't really ever make it into the whole narrative of the history of that format or mm. history of that overall thing. Yeah, I think that's just ways of pushing it because at one point you might be, uh, you could be satisfied that you show your parents your work and then you could be satisfied that you show your friends your work and mm-hmm. then that doesn't become enough for you. So you, you know, yeah. then you expand beyond your friends and you find new colleagues and then, yep. like you said, you get, maybe you get in exhibitions and now strangers and, mm-hmm. but you, you keep pushing, pushing. We, yeah. we were just talking to Gary Schneider about the fact that his you know, this incredible body of work of his own work is going along with this other work that he had collected, all going to Harvard and knowing Mm -hmm. that it's going to be there. You know, it's like, it's not going to get thrown out when, you know, he and his partner pass from the world, you know, it's like it's found a home. And therefore, there's more likely that scholars are going to come across it in decades from now and go, oh, what was this? You know, how does this relate to this time period in, mm-hmm. in the history of art or in the history of New York City, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I mean, Gary's it, uh, work is very unique. I've never seen anything like that. And um, that's what it takes. You, know, you got to stand out in a way. And it, it can all be genuine. It doesn't have to be forced. Mm-hmm. At some point in making the work, you have to not care about getting the recognition you just have to get the work done yeah the satisfaction is in making the work all that other stuff will come later yeah it still takes work but yeah you you work on that later yes but but tying into this idea of uh community and building so you're also by running with your instagram account and with the twitter account you're Mm -hmm also making people aware of other uh other artists that they should be paying attention to and you know building community and hoping so how how i I think going back to that lens scratch article people uh the person who wrote the article whose name i just forgot was saying that uh they were coming to you as someone who could Mm -hmm. like help them find more artists of color and so uh it, it immediately made me think, well, Smithson, okay. Alan Smith. Thank you. Uh, made me think, how are you finding these people? Like, how are you finding the, the people yeah, that, where well, she wasn't? I'm, you know, sometimes it takes scouring the internet for hours, you know, mm. just trying to find people and using certain search terms just over and over and over until you come up with something. But the, all the people that I featured in Lynch Scratch, 
I had either met in person or had some sort of short, either a long-term or short-term relationship with them, knew their work, understood who that person was. So I was able to make those selections and have a general, a genuine feeling about the work that, yes, other people need to see this. You listed uh, 75 other photographers to get to know African-American photographers, right? Yes, because, you know, there's... (laughs) Other people, and you know, I put at the top of that article beyond Eli Reed, right? Louis Draper, Mean <laughs> Smith, um, Gordon <laughs> Parks. There's already enough press going around about them. People know who they are now, and that's not. I'm not making that negative or anything. It's very positive, and um, let's let's get the word out about other people mm-hmm. as well because they made, you know, if if you know, if not as great contributions, you know just as equal contributions to the field of photography that people just have not, they're just not aware of it. And all I'm trying to do is make people aware of what's out there. Mm -hmm. Then again, so people can't say that they don't know. Yeah. Because here it is, here's a format (laughs) right here. You can go look on the timeline and see what has come out month by month, year by year. You can read interviews, you know, I just try to put all the content in one place you know, as sort of a curator. And what's fee- what has the feedback been like on, on running the the uh, Instagram account and the Twitter account? And it's been good, uh, especially lately. It's picked up, and again, it goes back to just making work. You know, at first I had that thing; it was like thirty followers or twenty followers <laughs> or something. And, you know, I'm not blasting it out to people in emails. I'm not posting it to Facebook. I don't use Facebook that much. I've posted it on there a couple of times and people just stumble across it on their own. And it it comes uh, you build the following through knowing other permanent people in the field who then, you know, retweet your stuff or whatever. Uh, but uh, the, the following has been fairly consistent over the last month or so up to like twenty five hundred followers, I think, and continu- continually. Uh, you know, growing each day, you know, follower by follower. And I want the people who want to know about it to come to the site. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to know about it, that's that's fine. You know, I can't force anything on anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. But, I mean, the overall feedback has been opportunities like this uh, to come on and speak about it and people reaching out to me. Um, yeah, I, I can't yeah. remember if you found me or I found you first. Do you remember? I don't know. Was yeah. it on... Twitter, Twi- I think it was Twitter, or Instagram. It okay. was Twitter, yeah, yeah. Which, which is my least used account. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and now um, you're working, uh, is this a current project working in Appalachia? No, that, that happened during my time period at Ohio University. Oh. So oh, I, okay. I can explain the two. So, that's, Ohio University is an MA program. Visual communications is a really well known program, and um, they sort of have ro- risen to prominence. I mean, it was already a famous school, just like, you know, people go to Mizzou or or people go to Newhouse at Syracuse. So the top four schools, I would say, for photojournalism is uh, Western Kentucky University, uh, Mizzou, Syracuse University and Ohio University. Um, A lot of people in the industry as far as photojournalism goes and and other art forms, uh, they all come from those institutions um, and have very high success in in their fields based on the education that they receive from those places and the network that you build. Uh, first semester of my second year, we had this class called Magazine. And you build up, you have to write your own copy, design your own magazine. You had to build contacts, plan out a shoot for 10 days. So first couple of weeks, you plan out all this stuff. Then you go out for 10 days and you come back, put it all together. Mm. That's where the Arkansas Delta Project started. 
but I had been uh, my work there started. I, I had gotten such not that great feedback about my work. I was really struggling my whole first year at Ohio University, and you know, should I go home and <laughs> find something else to do? It's, it's uh, like according to these people, I can't make an image to save my life. <laughs> and uh, it took going through all that and peeling back all that layer and trying to you know building up a thick skin for all this feedback. And then I would make these Instagram pictures. And in my first year review, that's what saved me. Oh, wow. <laughs> Making all these pictures on Instagram. It's like, you got to make this with your real camera. You got to be able to do that. And I said, well, if I'm making pictures of my family with my Instagram, maybe I'll do it with a real camera now. And so that sort of worked out and got me jump started on that. Moving to the second semester, second year, um, you have your uh, final master's project that you have to submit. Most people do a book. Or most people shoot like a documentary, uh, you know, some sort of film or multimedia moving image kind of thing. So I decided to do a book in Appalachia. I had some roots going back to Appalachia because I did like these summer these summer institutes at Virginia Tech. Uh, my brother was getting his PhD at Virginia Tech at the time in architecture, and he had did this program when he was an undergraduate. He said you should apply for it. I did it two years in a row. So your brother followed in your father's footsteps. Yeah. Does that, does that make him the favorite? I don't know. I mean, I think they say they love us all the same, so I believe them. But uh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I sort of, I was following my brother's footsteps um, in a way as far as academia goes, so I kind of know everything about academia from him and still learning about other people. Because things are very specific depending on your field, you know, how to get to that next step and what you need to do to sort of build up your reputation or resume, CV, whatever. But that project started, I was looking for African-American communities in Appalachia because there's not, or people will make the blatant statement, there's no black people in Appalachia, but there, there is. I said there has to be people who locally grew up around Athens, Ohio, or the surrounding areas, and there were, but it just happened to be this complex, not the whole entire thing, but it just happened to be this complex triracial uh, communities and going back to again where people could pass for white um, people in their younger years they were african-american had african-american features um, blonde hair blue eyes you know they used to pass or people assumed things about them and mm. they would have a brother or sister right next to them had darker complexion no way they could pass mm. moving through how segregated you know appalachia was in that time period post-segregation after segregation that kind of thing um you had a um you discovered a term for these people, which yeah. I'm, I'm not sure I should say. I don't know. It's a uh, Melungeon. <laughs> and now I think it's, um, I'm not going to speak for the people in Appalachia because, you know. <laughs> right. But it, the term is Melungeon uh, or when people, white, Indian, and Negro. Those are just like sort of academic sort of terms for it. But people literally just identify as black or a person of color, mm. that kind of thing. It's, it's really an individualistic type of thing based on that person's experience and that's what I learned from interviewing the people that I did portraits of for that book that I turned in you know you make five copies one for the library one for your thesis chair one for the department one for the rest of the chair members that kind of thing that's as far as the book went but I do want to continue that work and do more with it and I was trying to connect the underground railroad in Ohio how it came up from the south mm. and that was your uh, one of the stops right before Canada People came through Ohio. It was a big trail, you know, I would say a, a popular trail. A lot of people came through there. And then you go back into time, the Trail of Tears, where Native Americans were, you know, migrated 
across the United States, you know, to tribal lands and things like that. But some of them got away, tucked away in the hills and West Virginia, Ohio, some of that's a part of the narrative. And uh, the people have been mixing, you know, for years. Mm-hmm. You know, there were some communities in Ohio, the, the whites, uh, Native Americans and African Americans would all mix together. Mm-hmm. Um, no problem. Nobody had any problems. So it, it, it's sort of mixed. And there's a lot of interracial couples in Ohio just in general, general from where, what I saw when I was there. So if stuff was kind of happening in the present and it has this past narrative too. And I sort of spoke about those things in my own family, which is why I was interested in that. You know, some of my great-grandparents, some of the way they look and thinking about my great-great-grandparents and then my great-great-great-grandparents and then you go great-great-great-great-grandparents. <laughs> some of them were white or full Native American that kind of thing. I'm sort of far removed from it, um, but there's variations in complexions between me and my brothers and mm. my mom's brothers and sisters and on both sides, um, my dad's side of family, my side of family. That Are you going to do one of those ancestry tests? I do want to, I do sort of want to send that in because yeah. um, I don't know, really know how accurate it I, is. I just did it. The, it's pretty fascinating. It. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I do want to do that and sort of um, make some work based off that or try to get it to jumpstart somewhere. Mm-hmm. I just want to know like, you know, what does this database say? Right. Or something <laughs> like that. Um, I pro- probably will send it to two different places. Just, you know, Ancestry.com I think has one. And yeah, that, I did. Stuff, yeah. I think that's the one I did. Yeah, Ancestry. Yeah. yeah. And then there's uh, 23 and Me and a yeah. couple others. And yeah. And if they want to uh, sponsor the show, feel free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, again, it's sort of dealing with those same... I could not get over that complexity of that. And I had already been thinking about it before I started their work and kept thinking about it as I went to Rutgers, which is how Black Alchemy came together um still thinking about those ideas but not necessarily talking directly to the people who were involved in making portraits as i did when i was in ohio so um yeah. you know and those set of pictures mostly had the older generation middle age generation 30s all the way up to like 70 60 uh, people in those age ranges but i would like to go back and do the younger generation of people my age and even younger than that keep making portraits there uh, so we'll see if that comes into play. That's why I mentioned earlier, yeah, you know, I wouldn't mind moving back to Ohio if some kind of opportunity mm-hmm. uh, presented itself. I enjoy my time when I lived there. Oh, I, yeah, that was before so, before we started recording. I think we were talking yeah. about jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of my... Mm. Is that MA program also where you um, sort of got more interested in social media? Did, was that part of the program? Yes, that was... You know what? This Around this time period, Instagram had was just getting big and everyone was like, you got to have an Instagram. And, you know, people were getting commissions to shoot Instagram for publications. Mm. When oh, that whole yeah. thing, um, time sent out Roddy Roy and Ben Lowey, uh, or Loy, I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name, but, you know, a lot of photographers were getting, it was about three or four years where, and people are still getting commissions, I believe, or, or it's more like Instagram takeovers. People yeah. pay you to take over the feed or, what, something they, wait but, they pay <laughs> yeah i think they pay yeah they pay um most you know the bigger uh companies sure <laughs> the new yorker and, and stuff like that but yeah it, and it's always this strange intersection of between like business how to market yourself and how to have a sustainable career as an artist and a freelancer i think are kind of in the same 
situation, no matter if you're like a woodworker, yeah, a sculptor, fabricator, a photographer. You want to see followers. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> you're trying to find this balance, you know, whether you're trying to just start your own business or I don't know. You just you just want to everyone wants a sustainable lifestyle. I don't think anyone wants to be broke. Or, or be without, but, you know, most people, you know, you go through your grind period where you, you know, and then you eventually, you aspire to be at a point where your work is what's fully supporting you. Uh, and I don't think the, the end story for most people is not an unsuccessful one if you don't reach that point. You know, at least you attempted it. And um, it's just all about making good decisions and the best decisions for yourself and your situation, I think, when it comes down to that. But yeah, that's. Yeah. I got more interested in social media. Um, I was using Twitter a lot that time and um, trying to figure out this whole thing about like how to be a freelancer because this also was around the same time where it's like, you know, jobs were not, especially in photojournalism, still now people are getting laid off. Newsrooms are shrinking, you know, mm -hmm. a whole city, the only, the staff only has, there's only like 40 people on staff. And that's what the home, my hometown paper, the Commercial Appeal in Memphis, Tennessee is dealing with. Um, you know, they're selling the building now. Gannett bought it and there's been layoffs ever since, that kind of thing. And I have an appreciation for photojournalism, editorial, commercial photography, fashion, photography, as well as fine art. I like it all. Yeah. And I like to look at the business aspects of it all. They're all variable, but you still apply the same concepts to them. Um, I don't know. I've just always been interested in the business side. And, you know, I have some different ideas about that moving forward and what the potential artists have moving forward, um, especially looking at the music industry now with, like, streaming and people being anti-record label. You know, I'm not going to sign anybody. Mm -hmm. It's going to be all crowd-driven and crowd-funded, that kind of thing. Yeah, although I just uh, yeah. read an article that uh, LPs, L albums are so popular again that I think Sony's going to start cutting them for every artist again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, There's some ideas I have moving forward about that where I think artists can kind of take the same approach uh, to sort of um, compensate it for the hard work they put in in the studio. There's nothing wrong with being compensated for your work. Here, <laughs> here. Because the attitude is at Ohio, you know, get your copyright, register with the copyright office. Right. You know, I know people have gotten their images stolen and had to go to court and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, sometimes it's not talked about in art school. In art school, you need copyright and all that kind of stuff, too. You know, you'll you have business people coming after you, uh, wanting to use your work for something. You know, Apple comes to people all the time, especially photographers. And, you know, oh, hey, can we use that video in a mm -hmm. commercial or something like that? You know, you got to know your worth. You got to be ready. You know, signing on, you know, release forms and yeah. all that kind of stuff, having it all in order so that you can um, uh, properly benefit um, from the work that you do yeah and copywriting your work it's not hard and it's not that expensive yeah. i think it's like 40 dollars, and you can do a year's worth of work yeah you can do a yeah. bundle you know send yeah. a thousand images in like tiny yeah. images you have know, you ever online. done that i have i used to do it as part of my job <laughs> i worked at a science stock photo agency you know as a freelancer you know when i was in ohio university the, the, the climate is still the same as far as like when you got out then you might not have a staff job waiting for you like it was in the glory days so you know you make the two three trips to mm -hmm. new york to meet with all the the photo editors, people are still doing it. People are right. doing it right now. Mm. You know, I see on Facebook and Instagram, hey, I'll be in New York yeah. the next three days. 
you know, meet with editors. A lot of what encouraged me to go get an MFA as well, because I would see people with MFAs and BFAs, they're competing for the same editorial commissions at the newspapers, at the magazines Mm -hmm. and things like that as people coming out of photojournalism programs, you know? Yeah. Uh, So that's why I thought those two worlds can collide as well. There's, you know, yeah, I think yeah. Kathy Ryan at the New York Times really mm-hmm. spearheaded this idea because she kept hiring these MFA students exactly. to shoot these uh, jobs for the magazine yeah. and everything else, different, right? Different perspective. Yeah. yeah. And one thing that I noted by looking at uh, your at the Instagram feed, not the Twitter feed, but the Instagram feed was that you also take the time to write up long descriptions and stuff mm-hmm. like you don't like a lot of people like hey go check out this other photographer and they just like repost yeah. something but you're you're uh, acting more like a curator in the way that you're like giving some background mm-hmm. about you know who the photographer is or the work or something yeah. like that so is writing uh, a, a big part of your how you think about writing i i actually do not like to write <laughs> but <laughs> i'm trying to get in because i like robert adams writing i like his whole background he's english professor photography came after that and kind of transitioning in life from being a full-time professor to trying to you know make a living off his artwork and he's written several books and put out several photo books and Mm -hmm. writing is always a strong part of that and i was always told early on in academia you know you gotta you know know how to express yourself and Mm -hmm. you know even at Rutgers, is you gotta you know no one really likes doing artist statements and you know, bodies of works making a statement about it, but you have to figure out how to verbalize it. Yeah. Um, so I try to make sure I do it well when I do write because people can be re- very critical of you in writing. That That's one of the fearful oh, yeah. things about writing because it's not just, you know, people can be very critical of your photographs too. You know, it can it's be easier heavy. to be critical of the writing in a way, right? Exactly. It's like you know. uh, it's like fashion. Like, well, it's easier yeah. to like critique what someone's wearing or what someone ha- wrote exactly. versus something else because it's less amorphous. Maybe yeah. I don't know if you're like, oh, mm, that's you why know. I think um, T.G. Cole is um, like he's a very interesting person coming from a writing background and doing these photographs, and it's kind of like a flip flop. He's still writing, still writing a lot, writing heavily. Uh, and on a very consistent basis, but also making strong visual work at the same time. And sometimes that's, if, if let's say two photographers are photographing the same thing, maybe a slightly different aesthetic approach, the writing can really be the, you know, the breaker mm-hmm. of what which work stands out the most or not, mm-hmm. or how well you can articulate your ideas. Right. That's one thing that I learned at Rutgers as, as well. You know, sitting through all those critiques, was kind of tough um, just because of my attention span. But I'm like, you know what? I, I, I just forced myself to be engaged. I, did, I didn't always talk a lot, but I would always jot down terms that every, other people were saying. And I would go back and say, you know, why did they mm. use that? Why is it applied to this? And I'd go back and try to understand it mm. and just try to build my own personal vocabulary and work on my own intellectual thinking mm. about why it is I like something. Mm-hmm. You know, getting past that, oh, I like that. So why yeah. do you like it? Yeah, well, I mean, even when we talk about the benefit of group critique, it's uh, off. It's not having your own work critiqued. It's more you often get more out of just talking about other people, seeing what uh, people say about their work and other people's work, and uh, and like you said, even like writing things down or like thinking about it, how other people Mm -hmm. are articulating it. So uh, that later, that when you want to write about somebody else's work you've (laughs) got some way to to approach it that isn't just your own like oh i like it or you know like that's that's so generic 
Um, and sometimes it's frustrating, going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, African-American photographers not getting their due justice. Is you, you look at it and think about it, and why is that frustrating? But then you have to just keep listening. Why do people keep bringing up Robert Frank? Why do people bring up Robert Adams? Why do people talk about John Sarkowski? Well, you know, why do people talk about the same people all the time? Mm. <laughs> um, what makes them good? What have people said about them? And how can you understand it, internalize it, and try to work away in the studio or work away on the field, however you work, to sort of have a conversation indirectly or directly with another photographer's work? Yeah, I think it's very easy when yeah. something's been canonized to just just accept it that oh this is you know this is part of the canon it's great and yeah. you know like it's and it's always going to be great and, yep. and maybe not you know maybe it's not that useful to you maybe yeah. you need to know about it so you can just like you talking about those terms that people you need to be able to say the americans and know what it, know what it means exactly but it doesn't mean that you're going to use that as your bible to go out and yeah. make your own work right talk about the americans and uh you know how was that work important right Okay, one, two, and three, four, five, six. Okay, these are the major points. And this is what I think about it. And I agree with this and I disagree with that. Mm. And you can build your own conversation in your own database and have conversations with other people mm -hmm. and collaborations with other artists or other photographers. And, yeah. You know, well, it's something new right there. Yeah, speaking of collaborations, we've had a number of people on who are part of like online. Um, a new uh, nothing? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, new, yes, sir. I knew nothing. Okay, or, 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 um, or just, we've had, uh, when we had Matt Stewart Matt, on, right. he was part of, I don't think he's now, he's Magnum, so he's right. not another thing. But, uh, <laughs> but the people in different collectives, and, right. like these kind oh, of yeah, the collectives. collectives yeah. And uh, I believe, I think you're in one, unless I misread something on in your... which one? Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, uh, yeah, collective. Uh, it's Gish Collective. Gravity yeah, Gish. is stronger here. And um, that's Jacob Lehman and Phyllis B. Dooney. Who will be at the, uh, I think it's called the Light Work Festival that takes place in Hudson, New York. She'll mm -hmm. be there in the fall. Oh. She just came out with a book, has several films to go along with that work. But those two photographers had been working in Greenwood, Mississippi um, for a number of years before they both contacted me and said, would you like to join us on that? And that's the thing. I, I haven't been back to Greenwood uh, maybe in a year and a half, almost two years. But I plan on going back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's you know, I've, I've come to terms with, you know, photography takes time sometimes. And then there's moments when you sit back and think about work and there's moments when you need to take charge and make the work. So you just got to find a balance between that. Um, but, yeah, those two photographers, I think Jacob has taken a break from making work in Greenwood or he's been making four by five images there in color. And he's just taking time to sort through those. And he has. Uh, so the collective yeah. is specifically going to be around Greenwood. That's the, yes. the gravity of oh, Greenwood. Yeah. OK. And, um, you know, looking at the history of that. But Phyllis uh, be doing it. She's doing the MFA at Duke, the Duke Documentary Center oh, yeah. Studies. Um, I think that's the name. Of, and um, yeah. she is the first one to like put out work you know, combine all her five, six years of work into something and put mm -hmm. it out there. And uh, that's actually, you know, things are going out there. And she also did these portraits, these, um, what do you call them? The photo technique where you block out a little, you put a lens on the window or leave a hole open. Uh, oh, uh, camera obscura. Camera obscura. Yeah, she did yeah. these camera obscura portraits in um, some apartments here in New York. I don't know if it's Brooklyn or what, the Bronx or something like that. 
But uh, yeah, she's been working for a while. So That's yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I saw yeah. it listed, but I wasn't sure what it what the deal. Yeah, was. it's oh. it's sort of like we're still in communication with each other, but it's not like a formal. Yeah. Thing and, and speaking of collectors, I I, I love the collective uh, Luceo when mm. it was out a couple of years. Do you all know about that? No. Uh, Luceo was like a Kevin German, Matt Slaby, Kendrick Brinson, David Walter Banks, and um, or Matt Ike, and they would take these cross country trips. Uh, mainly all photojournalists, and uh, the collective ended up breaking up uh, just because everybody's careers, from my perspective, started taking off, and everybody had different commitments and stuff to go to but I, I think that was a really good platform of how photographers come together mm. and market themselves collaborate move together in the same place that whole kind of thing mm. nice. so yeah it's a really good uh, i think their website is still up but that now i think the only two members are matt slaby and kevin german um so yeah, yeah. did we miss anything anything you coming up you wanted to mention or things uh, you're working on um i'm well, I'm in an exhibition at the Virginia, Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art. Yeah, a long right one now. through the summer, right? Yeah. May through August or something? Mm-hmm. Or? It's like, yeah. I think August 10th, it goes down um, in there with uh, eight other photographers work from the South. Uh, and those are the type of opportunities that come out of nowhere. Hmm. I was never expecting anything like that, especially what I consider early on in my career. Um, so I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Happy for that opportunity. Um, first museum show. That's so. <laughs> great. Now, Aaron, we're going to link to everything, of course, your website, Twitter, okay. Instagram, and um, get everyone. So hopefully we'll get five, at least five more followers. That's right. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> hey, photo, the photo show bump. One, yeah. One or five. It, it doesn't matter. It all counts. That's right. Exactly. Nice. Oh, well, so, thank yeah. you very much. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you all. all right. Bye, everyone. Bye.